Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and the KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. The latest episode today is with Rev Medica. Got two gentlemen on the line, Tom Winchell and Rob Saddy. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about their uh, powered surgical stapler platform. Um, and let's just jump right into it, guys. I, I would love to know the backstory. Maybe I'll start with you, Tom. Um, the backstory on where, where did Rev Medica come from? I know you spent many years working in industry, but just talk a little bit about the background. Yeah, no, great, great, great question to start off with, Andy. So as you know, obviously, we worked together a little bit when I was the director of research and development at, uh, at Medtronic, uh, which back then was probably Covidian. Uh, Rob and I worked together on a lot of projects, um, and that's where we kind of built the relationship. He was a go-to guy. Uh, and quite honestly, it wasn't you know until after I left Medtronic, uh, Rob had left a little bit before me, um, that he reached out to me uh, with the idea the original concept around Rev Medica, and uh, I got pretty excited about it. Decided to uh, drop what I was doing and, and, and go all in, uh, and started really early on with just a provisional application. But I'll let Rob, you know, tell you kind of what was the genesis of, of the idea that got things going, uh, and then sort of what it's turned into now, which is uh, quite a far away from from that early days. Yeah, I saw a lot of uh, R and D dollars going into full robotic applications in the surgical suite knew that, uh, at least in my opinion, the world is not going to go to a full robotic play across the board for all surgeries. Uh, it was needed and uh, required for some procedures and also created procedures within itself. But there was always going to be a need for technology innovation in hand instruments. Uh, and from that, Tom and I conceptualized a bunch of different features to allow surgeons to operate better. Uh, in the OR, and that's really where the initial idea came from, was knowing that the need was not going to be a full robotic system, but something that gave the surgeon tools to make better decisions uh, in his current procedures. Yeah, I love that. Our, our prior guest was with Galen Robotics, um, and they're also you know surgeon assist platform. So, you know, I, the term I, I caught just doing some research is cybernetic. Uh, I love that. I love that term. It's cybernetic laparoscopic surgical stapler. Um, so. Just can you remind our audience, you know, what the state, what procedures and what organs are these, would these staplers be used for? Laparoscopic stapling, which is the area we're targeting with our, our control module technology first. It's a four and a half billion dollar market. Um, it's the workhorse in surgery. It's used every day. Uh, we invented the first ones down at United States Surgical Corporation uh, when Leon Hirsch figured out how to, how to automatically load little staples into plastic cartridges. Um, so basically, these devices are used to simultaneously uh, join uh, and dissect soft tissue uh, inside the abdominal cavity, uh, thoracic cavity. Uh, so basically, lung, stomach, colon, bowel, uh, appendix, liver, spleen, uh, you name it, anything soft tissue, uh, staplers are used to, uh, to dissect and ligate uh, simultaneously. And it's about a, a three millimeter long uh, instrument is the length of the device where all this is happening. They're fired multiple times throughout the course of a procedure. Got it. So you're you're in the abdomen laparoscopically, and uh, can you describe just where this product fits in the market with with on market surgical staplers, whether they're powered or purely mechanical? Like how does it compete? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so traditional devices out there were always disposable. Um, it was when uh, U.S. Surgical had saw a little company down in Langhorne, Pennsylvania called Power Medical uh, that started with the first uh, robotic, or I'm sorry, powered platform uh, for stapling devices. They actually then went and purchased that technology. Um, and it's a, they, they still have it on the market today. It's a, it's a reusable system uh, that has some powered functionality. Um, at Ethicon, Johnson & Johnson kind of saw that the trend was going towards powered um, and they decided to come up with a device of their own that's powered only. They opted to go with more of a disposable powered option. Uh, so they defeatured it. doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. Gets the job done. Um, and really, those are the two devices out there in the powered realm. And then there's still a lion's share of products that are used manually, um, you know, that require the surgeon to hand crank and, and, and pump through the tissue uh, with really no feedback other than their, their own eyes and their own feedback on their hands. Uh, so I, I think really what we've come up with is we're a hybrid model. We call it a hybrid reusable, um, where we've really got the best of both worlds, right? We've got uh, the advanced features and functionality to give the surgeons the greater performance, give them intelligence and feedback and data, um, you know, and, and do it in a way that's sustainable um, without interrupting workflows, without requiring hospital sterilization processes, uh, and, and also reducing the amount of waste that goes in the incinerator because ours is, again, it's a hybrid reusable model. Um, so I think that's where we fit. We give surgeons what we know they want. Uh, they always want more. They just don't want to pay for it. And they certainly want to try to be as sustainable as they can without workflow interruptions. There's definitely a space in the market for a hybrid option just based on the research I've done. So just to be clear, there's the, to our audience, there's a purely mechanical surgical stapler that you're, you're gripping and clamping and making staples along the way. And then you've got a, 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 a purely um, electromechanical, I guess, but you would throw it away. So you're in between, you're providing this battery pack essentially with sensing and drive um, um, uh, features. Um, so let's just, let's get into to the meat of, of this podcast, which is the data. And so I think I caught you guys were a part of the i program. So, so kind of a curveball question for you, but <clears throat> the first bit of data I want to talk about is the market data. So how did you, you, or what data did you collect from the market, whether it's surveys or whatever, to, to drive you to this hybrid architecture? Like how did, how were you convinced with market data? And we get that a lot. And when we were in the i program as part of the NSF, one of the instructors actually asked me, we interviewed 135 uh, potential target customers and surgeons. Um, and they asked me, how did you get a surgeon to admit to you that they don't always know, um, you know, and that they need this type of technology to help them decide how thick the tissue is and, and to make better choices to end up with better outcomes. And, and it really came down to just walking them through a day in the life with starting with you know, when they first scrub in, when the device gets prepared, how do they use it? What do you like about the current devices? And then taking them through, you know, their decision-making criteria for how do they select the staple cartridges? And really at the end of the day, Andy, they, every one of them was honest and open with us and said, you know, I'm, I'm good with this. You know, I, I'm really good at figuring out what size staple to use. You know, sometimes I guess, but I kind of get it right. But, you know, it's really a gut feel. And then when we asked them, geez, well, what if you had something more? What if you had something that actually indicated to you, or better yet, gave you data that not only told you you chose right, but then also validated that you got a good result at the end? Or better yet, you're going to get a good result when you're done with the firing. And 
10 out of 10 times or 135 out of 135 times, the surgeon resoundingly said, absolutely, I want that, I need that, um, I don't want to pay more for it. So that was really what we heard. And, and if you go back to really our core technology, again, because it's this hybrid reusable, you know, that's at the core of who we are is you don't have to pay more for it. You know, we're giving you better technology that makes it safer, better decision-making process, better powered, you know, robotic controls, all that. And, you know, we're dropping the cost. We're stripping out the waste and the inefficiencies and the workflows and the, and the, and the waste. So, um, you know, that's really what we heard loud and clear was that surgeons absolutely want to innovate. They're just sick and tired of getting bells and whistles that don't really move the needle that end up ultimately charging more to their hospitals. Yeah, so I understand the the, the desire for that functionality that you're, that you're providing, but I guess I want to talk a little bit more about the hybrid architecture because you know you're 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 offering that yes you're going to add provide this functionality the articulation the smart firing and sensing and things like that, but now you're also going to have to ask them to you know keep the durable somewhat sterile or you know recharge and things like that. So I guess how did you? How did you arrive that yes, that architecture will work versus just a purely throwaway electromechanical architecture? We wanted to eliminate. Um, you just said something. You said a dirty word, which is sterility. <laughs> we wanted to eliminate the need for the hospital uh, to sterilize our our durable piece in between procedures. Really, what we wanted to do is we we looked at the entire ecosystem from the moment this product comes in the hospital. So when it gets used, when it's done being used, and when it gets prepared for the next procedure, we looked at the inefficiencies of the current power devices, uh, current reusable power and current disposable power devices. And, and that's where we've, where we've come up with a solution that completely eliminates uh, those workflow inefficiencies, which add up to a lot of extra capital, upfront costs inside the hospital, a lot of extra time in central sterile and central sterilization. Um, and, and quite honestly, and a lot of extra waste and lithium batteries. So really, we've eliminated um, the, the, the hurdles uh, to, to adopting a reusable, durable platform uh, with our control module technology. Now, yes, you do have to store the control module somewhere in the central stack. Uh, that is the reusable, durable piece, but there's no sterilization required. The batteries on our device are interchangeable. We just got our fifth patent uh, issued last month for that, as, as a matter of fact. So. Uh, really, it eliminates uh, any need for, for any, any downtime in between procedures, and you could use our technology from uh, one instrument to another. So that was, that was really the answer, um, was, was giving them all that without uh, putting any undue burden on the hospital or on any of the employees. Yeah, and there was precedence there in the orthopedic suite. The, the interface and the interaction of these devices and the reusable nature, it's done every day in orthopedics. We just need to translate it to soft tissue, and we need to understand uh, what makes the nursing staff and the hospital staff effective in those procedures and uh, deploy it in these soft tissue procedures. Now, that, that's important. Yeah, you've got some sort of heuristic sort of um, processes to point to and say, look, there's precedence here. So, so you don't need to really wipe down the module, really? It's, it's just... Uh... Well, obviously, no, the module gets wiped down, but there's no, there's no sterilization. It's a non-sterile component. Um, which is aseptically inserted inside of the, uh, the sterile disposable handle, um, and then it's, it's sealed inside of that compartment. So you called earlier a, a battery pack. It's a lot more than that. Uh, it's batteries, it's motors, it's transmission gearboxes, uh, and, and obviously all the sensoring, sensors and, and, and electromechanical goodies that are inside there. You, you graduated i I'm loosely familiar with that, that uh, program, but okay, so there's a market need, and 
um, you kind of fit that sliver of the market with the hybrid architecture. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about, okay, the market data has been collected. What you're looking at each other, you're both seasoned veterans uh, at this point in developing these platforms. What, what data was most critical for your venture after, you know, kind of getting this market data? I mean, was it just a functional prototype? Uh, or, you know, what, what were you doing? What, what data was most critical? It, it was hard for us to really take our engineering hats off because we, by trade, our engineers, Tom has 20 plus years, I have 10 plus years. And when we went into VOC and the I-Corps was critical uh, in teaching us this, we had to look at their workflows and their job function. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to gather the data that was important to the end user because that effectively translated uh, to our device more effectively than us just talking to them about features. So we looked at the, the way that the device interacted with tissue, the way that the device interacts with the workflows in the OR. And then we scored them zero through 10 and then ranked those different aspects of data based on where they said it was more important. Um, and then we aggregated all of that and put that together in spreadsheets and visual graphs uh, to communicate with investors and other users as to what we were collecting to make sure that we were on the right path. And then that effectively translated right into our user inputs into our device. And those are the, the pieces of, they actually are the features now um, of the device, uh, of the user needs that is most critical to our de device success. Um, so that was kind of a roundabout way. Sorry, Andy, to, to take you on a loop there, but it really, we went at 360, we did a 360 on taking our engineering hats off, going to the users, collecting data from them, and then translating that into our user specs, which effectively are engineering specs. No, that's, uh, that's exactly what we were hearing from Galen Robotics the last go around. I mean, the user is the customer, right? So I guess, so you, were you taking non-functional prototypes to them or was it mainly just visuals and maybe just like a, a disposable, you know, competitor product? Both. We certainly did. We certainly did a lot of both. Um, with the I-Core, physical prototypes were impossible. It was in the heart of COVID. It was just a lot of phone interviews. Um, a lot of time we did, web, you know, Zoom calls, et cetera. But, uh, but we've also done a lot of wet labs, um, both here in the office in our own lab and then also at some... Uh, so, some, some labs in the area as well with surgeons. And we constantly do that um, to put it in their hands and make sure, look, when we first started talking about the ability to gather data and give surgeons a better understanding of the tissue they're going into, sounds great, right? But, but until they actually put their hands on it and feel it, um, you know, that, that's where you really get the validation that, you, that you're going in the right direction. And that's exactly what we've been doing um, pretty frequently throughout the way as well. So if I may, on the tissue sensing, I mean, can you can you give a sense for like how precise? I mean, because the competing products don't really have much of anything. It's just a visual inspection. So I guess to what level of detail are you providing that feedback on the tissue? Is it just like small, medium, large or, you know, are you providing more granularity? And that's probably as detailed as I'll get on that topic. Yeah, without getting too detailed, uh, we're able to be very granular across all different patient anatomies and all different anatomies uh, that the stapler is being applied to. Uh, and that is directly uh, communicated to the user via a GUI or an HMI screen, a user interface screen, excuse me, to, to throw my engineering words out the window there. 
uh, through a user interface screen and that's done in real time. So there's no other product on the market that does it in real time as the surgeon's clamping and ensures that they can safely and effectively uh, utilize the device. And that's really where the patient aspect, the patient safety aspect comes into play. Yeah, and Amy, if I could back up too, I mean, one of the things I think we left out when we, about a year, two, two years ago, we got uh, uh, something, it was an announcement you, you might've read about, but it was, it was about 110,000 serious injuries and complications that were, uh, that were not previously reported to the FDA MOD database. Um, and uh, they came about, they came to the light and they were all, most of them related to surgical stapling issues and complications. And at the end of the day, when you boil it down, and matter of fact, the FDA just sent out guidance to all healthcare uh, employees back in October of 2021, um, really what it came down to was not understanding the proper staple size based on the tissue that you're getting into, making sure you don't have an obstruction um, you know, 110,000, that's a big number. Question we always get back is, yeah, what was the denominator? Sure, it's a small percentage, but it's still a very big number. And that's why, you know, when we went through those interviews, you really got to walk the surgeon through every step and just how do they get that comfort level. And so that really geared us towards the angle we went after with the data and with the granularity that Rob just mentioned in terms of the tissue sensing. What data do you have to collect? A lot of our, um, a lot of folks in your shoes, um, need to compare their products to existing products on the market. So can you talk a little bit, a little bit about, you know, what bench data you're collecting again, to kind of prove that your product is, I guess, equivalent or better than, you know, competing products on a bench, you know, cause you know, startups, as you, as you're well aware, there's not enough money to do it all kind of integrated. You started with voice of customer and getting, getting market primes there. Um, and then maybe you pivot to, proving out these technologies of the product on a bench. So can you talk a little bit about what you proved on a bench to, to compare yourselves to competing products? No, so, so, so certainly getting the data and all the customer interviews was important, but let's face it, you know, we knew what we were going after. We knew what this technology was gonna enable us to do. Um, and, and we knew the first thing we needed to do, which is something we've both been doing for my, myself 25 years and Rob 10 or 15 is form staples. Um, and that was really the first thing that we did was demonstrated, uh, quite honestly, right off the bat, our first prototype, we successfully, you know, fired staples through tissue. And that's really what we've been doing every step of the way is we go into uh, the thickest, nastiest tissue on a regular basis. We just did a lab last week before the holiday, um, you know, side by side to make sure uh, that this device is performing. Because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing it needs to do is is, is, is fire staples in all tissue ranges uh, and cut effectively over and over and over again. So surgeons are rely, you know, trust the reliability of it. So um, that was definitely our, our, our first foray. And that's, that's the one benchmark we continuously do is compare ourselves performance-wise to the competitors. So do you think you'll claim that, um, are you claiming equivalency? I mean, there's a 510K uh, path to market, but the idea that yeah that, that over time you'll you'll be able to show that there's less complications with your product exactly and and we've got a lot of support we've got we're, we're right now we're close to a, a pretty big contract with a large healthcare uh, healthcare group uh, that has a, a very large surgical innovations team uh, they've got a lot of excitement um, as do others as well uh, around what they can do some of these folks have already done studies to look at manual staplers, powered staplers across the different manufacturers and try to correlate the out, you know, the outcomes to leaks, bleeds, complications, et cetera. And, 
you know, typically they say, look, we don't see any differences. You know, they're all the same. There's really no impact. And we say, well, yeah, well, imagine what we can do uh, when we recreate that study. Only now we'll have the actual tissue uh, characteristics. We'll have the tissue, uh, you know, dynamics related to the stapler uh, that we can start to correlate that to. And, and I think we're going to learn some things. And just from, you know, anecdotally from the interviews and talking with the surgeons right off the bat, they kind of say, you know, if I had this, I might develop a different standard. Uh, for how I do some of my procedures if I actually had the data uh, to support that. So, yeah, I think we will. We'll find some improvements and really on all of those, on, on, bleaks, uh, on bleeds, on leaks, and on, uh, and on complications. Got it. Very, very good. All right. So just, just to pause real quick, we, we jumped right into it, but just to remind our, our audience. So RevMedica, you're developing a staple pack, right? A powered, am I right there? Hey, well, it's 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 a, it's not a staple pack. We're developing a control module technology, and it provides the robotic robotic functionality and inside of a handheld instrument. Uh, and our first device that we're going after is a powered laparoscopic stapler. So, really, the core of the company is the control module technology that provides the intelligence, the powered functionality um, in a non-sterile fashion, and that's what enables us to really add all these features and benefits in a sustainable package. So. Um, just backtracking a little bit. So key decisions you've made uh, at the company, um, you mentioned that there in a, in a prior interview, there were lots of pivots early on before deciding on, you know, the architecture that you're talking about now. You know, there was the robotic potentially integrating into a surgical robotic platform or developing your own. I guess what data did you ultimately collect to drive, you know, the decision and the architecture you have today? Was it just a little bit of everything plus time to market or what was it? No, well, you know, it was really only one pivot. Um, you know, the original concept that Rob came with was a robotic application. Um, and quite honestly, it was through that process of, of patenting and doing that first prototype. And it was a stapler for a robotic application. Uh, that was when we had the aha moment and we realized the, the opportunity of this control module technology uh, and what it can enable us to do inside of a handheld device. Um, and that's when we decided to go full fast on a handheld stapler. Um, we still have the robotic application. Matter of fact, we filed subsequent uh, applications in the robotic space to apply our, our, our control module technology to. Um, but really, that was the pivot. It was from that initial concept that we didn't throw it away. We're really leveraging that IP and then some uh, in, the, in the current robotic handheld platform we're working on today. Got it. So talking a little bit more about the, the handheld architecture. Um, I think I know the answer to this question, but um, did you consider like a complete refresh on how the surgeon interacts with the hand tool? Because now, you know, you've got, uh, you know, a GUI right there on the on the hand piece. Um, you know, it's heavier than maybe the obviously it's heavier than the more purely mechanical architecture. But uh, just talk a little bit more about the design of that human machine sort of interface. Were you trying to keep it the same as what's on the market or could you see it as an opportunity to differentiate? That was one of the goals uh, initially was, although we were improving clinical workflows, uh, for example, the workflows in the operating room, we didn't want to interfere with any of the uh, clinician's workflows or the surgical workflows. So the approach that a thoracic surgeon, cardiothoracic takes in the lobectomy, we wanted him to take that same exact approach. We didn't want to have a high barrier to entry in training and retraining surgeons to create a different procedure. We knew that I've been burned by that in the past. It's difficult. It makes being adopted in the hospital that much harder. 
We wanted to ensure that this device did not affect their surgical workflow at all while affecting their outcomes and their confidence in the procedure. Yeah, and if I could just add, one of the other big things that we focused on also, though, is we wanted it to be simpler. Um, you know, we wanted to really simplify uh, the ease of use for the surgeons. And, and, and we also made a big effort, and I think we've done a really great job. Uh, this thing fits a size six hand, and we made a big focused effort to make sure uh, that all the extra buttons and features we've added to this thing, one, they're intuitive, and it doesn't take, uh, you know, uh, multiple cases to get comfortable with, and two, that anybody can use it and pick it up. Uh, and then I think, you know, secondly, and this is digging a little bit into the into the, the engineering side of it, but we also wanted to use common sense uh, and use mechanical, uh, you know, mechanical stops and mechanical features and functions uh, to eliminate relying solely on software uh, for every for every for every click of this device as well, uh, which has definitely helped out tremendously. At this point in your development program, um, how how often are you putting uh, prototypes in the hands of of surgeons? Clearly, early on, you're 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 in in clinics probably weekly, but at this point, how often are you are you putting it in front of clinicians? Yeah, I'd say today nowadays it's more with upgrades of software, uh, different screen interfaces, different functionalities of the device. Uh, the, the, the more the performance of the device evolves and improves, um, you know, probably every month uh, at least. And we just had one probably last month. We'll be doing one again. Uh, the end of this week, we're going to put it in a clinician's hands. Certainly when we get this partnership I mentioned uh, with this Healthcare Institute, um, we're, we're probably going to be sending devices down there uh, blindly um, that we'll send down that they'll be able to have at their disposal to do whatever they like to and give us feedback on. Um, and we'll continue to do that. So. Yeah, I think it's important. I think at this point now, it's really, um, you know, getting into the robustness of the device uh, and the reliability of the system overall to find out what they really like and don't like. Um, and I continue, you know, I see us continuing to do that, you know, probably mi at minimum every month, uh, some some touch point uh, based on the latest, latest uh, performance of the device. Yeah, we've really built up a good relationship, though, with our advisors where we text and call them weekly. You know, anytime one of us thinks of something or we want to make a little update before we do any of that, we always bounce it off five to ten guys and gals uh, to just get their opinion on things. So, Rob, uh, where are you in development? Are you under uh, design controls now or are you still kind of pre-design control, ready, getting close to locking? Yeah, great question. Uh, so Tom, myself coming from big corporate, we would have been under much stricter design controls at this point. We've kind of changed our thought there and we're under quote unquote loose design controls at the end of feasibility. Uh, we have basic traceability of all of our components, rev controls on all designs, uh, software, so on and so forth, but we don't officially have a QMS stood up fully. Um, so we're in this pseudo design control design change phase where we don't want to lock ourselves in from a development standpoint. We want to be able to be nimble and change things on the fly. But also at the end of the day, if we needed to draw a line in the sand today, we'd be able to and say, this is a device moving forward. We're going to validate everything as is. Um, and so we've chosen that approach to make sure that we ensure nimbleness um, while not burning ourselves in the long run. I think that's a great strategy. So what are you waiting for? to lock design controls and i'm asking mainly because our audience they're all in the same boat they're all you know they have functional prototypes and you know kind of always continually fundraising they're like what are you waiting for 
Yeah, so Tom and I have a lot of experience with these tools specifically because we have so much experience in this field, so we're lucky with that. So we understand what our long lead time uh, tools are. So we've entered Design Freeze for those long lead times and kicked off those tools. Uh, and we're staying flexible on software interface, uh, the system level architecture, um, so that when we get to the time where we start to validate uh, officially, um, that will be when we will lock everything down. But right now, as we're waiting for these long lead tools to come in, we're still updating uh, software and the way the device interacts, certain angle on certain things. Um, so we're, there's really no discrete answer I could give you. It's, I guess we'll know it when we know it. <laughs> Um, but uh, we're waiting for for the uh, for the final design when all these long tools come in. I got it. So you want to integrate those in and kind of do a final test before locking the design. Okay, right. um, that's helpful. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you how and why you have structured your team the way you have? And I don't know the answer to the question about how your team structured, but maybe just Tom, if I may, like when the company started to roughly where you are today like what what does that look like um a lot of uh rob and i obviously doing everything um to start um but we've also been really fortunate uh, rob mentioned our advisors uh clinical advisors sir they were great but uh but beyond that we we brought on some other advisors for some key areas um that could really help us um you know both from brain power but also physical contributions uh, within early prototypes and early parts and, and and stuff to really get this thing up off the ground to show somebody. Um, so that was big. I think early on it was really just Rob and I and then everybody else was pretty much, uh, you know, virtual. Um, and, we, and we paid him with uh, as advisors, et cetera. Um, we've evolved, obviously, as we've raised more money. Um, you know, last year we had uh, three engineering interns, one we've kept on full time. We've got um, you know, advisors and contract uh, electrical engineers that are working for us, software engineers, multiple software engineers, um, legal, uh, intellectual property uh, consultants, etc. Um, so really in regulatory quality, you name it. So we've really put together a really solid virtual team um, that believe in what we're doing. I think that's the most important thing is, you know, finding somebody that you want to work with, but then that they want to work with you. And we've done that. Um, and really, it's it's pretty, pretty much virtual uh, besides what we're doing here at 175 uh, Four Path Road you know, between Rob, myself and our, our mechanical engineer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one way to do it. You know, the, the virtual model, and that's a lean and mean way to do it, particularly with you guys being kind of experienced in the market. It makes sense. I can imagine for, for other you know, founder CEOs with just the idea, but not the engineering background that they would need to, you know, make more kind of significant hires. But I imagine eventually you're going to want to bring on a more substantial internal team. Is that right? Absolutely. And that goes back to your, your QMS, you know, your really your design control question as well. You know, we could go on design control now, but, you know, it's just that much more that Rob and I and our engineer Dawson would have to do um, that really we don't have time for. I mean, other than keeping the controls loosely as Rob defined, you know, and that's why those additional resources, which we've got planned to bring in in, uh, in, in the fall, um, you know, to really help us manage all the components, manage all the suppliers, manage the QMS, uh, the testing, et cetera. So, yeah, certainly we've got plans for expanding as we move forward. But for this point, it's worked. Um, and like I said, we're really fortunate with the external team we've got that really have been able to deliver uh, for us whenever we've needed them to.
So I'm not going to let you guys off that easy with the competitive product question. So uh, this one comes from one of our uh, senior project managers. And just can you just describe the benefits of being able to tissue sense and articulate, right, which is what you're claiming with the downsides of, you know, having batteries and, you know, that, that additional user burden compared to the purely mechanical option, which I, I imagine is, is cheaper, maybe on a, on a per, per product basis, but just describe those benefits and why they're, you should use your product versus a purely mechanical one. One, one less complication. That should be, that should be all, all that matters. You know, really just one less complication, and we know we can do that. Um, you know, I can go on and on, but, you know, the waste with the current mechanical devices, we even eliminate a lot of that. Um, you know, but really, you know, most people we talk to, smaller-handed surgeons, you know, they can't use it. They can't use it. They're asking for powered devices uh, specifically for their procedures or their bariatric weight loss programs because they can't use the, the purely manual device. Uh, you know, one surgeon said it best. He said, you know what? Somebody's got to take the Da Vinci robot, you know, and boil it down into a handheld stapler because so far nobody's been able to really do it right. And when they do, we're all going to switch to it. Um, and I think that's really what it comes down to. Nobody's done it right yet. And I think that's what we're doing here. Yeah, I definitely underappreciate um, the challenges with a, a purely mechanical stapler. Also, you know, just general fatigue. I'm, I'm sure that's part of the equation too, right? Like time and time again, you know, just after a long day, I don't know how many cases these surgeons are uh, going through a day, but it's just, I'm sure it would be nice to have a, a powered stapler at your hand rather than having to squeeze it time and time again. Absolutely. So my next question, Tom, for you, like we've talked a lot about your initial commercial product, you know, a handheld powered laparoscopic stapler, but can you talk a little bit about what the future might hold beyond that initial launch, you know, for your company, RevMedica? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really the value of RevMedica is, is in that, that platform control module technology uh, and the ability for us to feed multiple devices, not just handheld staplers, uh, obviously, you know, circular staplers, uh, open instruments, uh, hand instruments, uh, energy-based devices, et cetera, we can apply that too. But, you know, even, even outside of soft tissue surgery, we've got some applications and some ideas and concepts uh, that we're pursuing. But one of the biggest areas that really excites us also, and you know, I know everybody's got a robot, everybody's getting into robotics. Um, we're looking at doing it, leveraging our same control module technology uh, to really be, again, a, a hybrid, um, you know, of, of a laparoscopic, robotic-assisted, bedside uh, type of robotic platform. And we've got a real strong patent portfolio into that direction. Um, we just got 40 claims uh, in a search report that were found to be patentable. For, um, still have a ways to go before we get them issued. Uh, but it's a, it's a great start and certainly looks promising. So, but certainly, yeah, we want to round out and put a robot in everybody's hands. Um, and then we want to build our own bedside uh, robot assisted uh, uh, robot for surgeons for laparoscopy as well. Yeah, that's a great sound by, you know, put a robot in everybody's hands. You know, because when you, when you talk to most people about surgical robotics or medical robotics, you know, they, they just think of the Da Vinci. But it seems like the future is actually more the cybernetic play here where you're you're helping a surgeon do their job uh, more effectively than necessarily replace that surgeon. Um, all right. So, yeah, yeah. So other other uh, uh, lightning round questions for you. So kind of a, a oldie, but a goodie. So, um, you know, what was the most challenging part or what 
has been the most challenging part of this endeavor for you both um and and how did you overcome it yeah so technical or aside or, from uh, a pandemic aside or? from a pandemic or going going without a paycheck that kind of stuff you know we all know that that exists but aside from that yeah 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 no i think you know i think it was um you know i mentioned we let we, we you know we, we needed to build that first one um and and, and how are we going to do that without a paycheck without funding uh, we got really creative, and like I said, we partnered up with some great people to get that first one. But then, you know, it's the frustrations. You know, I'm coming from, you know, Medtronic. I had, you know, $20 million a year budgets uh, and teams of engineers to do everything, and now it was Rob and I. And, you know, we'd get, you know, instead of, you know, the first 100, we'd get one. Um, and we had to make a lot of decisions based on that first one, um, you know, as we kind of stepwise, and you know, move things along. So... Um, luckily, you know, things have improved and, and we've been able to increase the numbers to get better data and better testing. But I'll tell you what we're doing inside of this little, you know, uh, two by two by by four brick. Uh, it's never been done before. You know, there's there's all the analysis and equations in the world, but nothing replaces, you know, the real world uh, application and usage of this thing. And and uh, we've been learning every step of the way. Um, as you were uh, answering, it brought up another question. I think it would be really valuable to hear your response. You know, so at KeyTech, you know, just to sympathize a little bit, you know, we're always, you know, either writing a proposal for like minimum viable prototype, like the one or, you know, an end to end. But you talked about instead of building 100 prototypes, you, you would only build one. That's all you had the funding for. And then you said you'd make a lot of decisions with that one prototype. Can you describe like, the mode of your product development was it was it very much like you build the one prototype and then start another sprint or was it kind of take that prototype and just kind of like make iterative changes all along the way and all of a sudden you're two years into it how did you structure like i don't know maybe the early the, the first two ish years of that kind of cycle yeah the the first two big iterations in the product were two big sprints it was make one product that does exactly what we wanted to do and then get a lot of learnings off of that in like the next month or so, get all the user feedback, and then do another sprint to make all the improvements. And then from that product, we iterated and made better uh, to meet all the inputs that we wanted to meet. So we would change different mechanisms as needed in different ways to, to improve on them and to perfect them. So I think it was a combination of both two big sprints and then iterations after that. Yeah, two long sprints. I like that. You know, I was a middle distance runner in college. So, you know, 800 meters is just a long sprint. Um, would you would you do that differently? It's hard to say. Uh, we got a lot of learnings off of those two big sprints. And when I say two big sprints, it wasn't with lack of talking to users at the same time. Um, we were talking to users throughout. Uh, I, I think... If in a perfect world, and Tom alluded to the fact when we were at Medtronic, we had a huge budget to work with. In a perfect world, we probably would have had a lot of different prototypes to get a lot of learnings off of that and then gone from there. Um, but we weren't able to continuously iterate week after week and get a lot of little learnings once we got to that one uh, form factor that we knew was good and knew that we could get a lot of learnings. Um, so I really do like the combination personally, Tom, I don't know if you want to weigh in at all, um, but it gave us a good mixture of getting to a final form factor that we could get some substantive feedback from and then allowing ourselves the nimbleness to refine those features to get even better. 
Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd add is we realized, you know, Andy, I mean, in the startup world, um, you know, you don't have the funding. Uh, sometimes you just have to do, you have to make decisions based on uh, hitting milestones, showing progress. Uh, and in that case, that was a couple of those long sprints. You know, we knew, um, you know, that we needed to get a device uh, in, in search's hands to get feedback that we can we can throw out there to our investors, current investors and new investors to let them know that we're making progress. You know, they don't want to hear that, you know, we haven't done another device. We haven't made any updates. Nobody's seen anything new. Um, you know, so I think that's part of it. You're always torn in a startup world between, you know, how much do you dot the I and cross the T early on, uh, you know, versus making the decision based on what you've got for runway and, and, and making a decision to get the most bang for your buck or the biggest splash with what money you've got, uh, whether that be patents, you know, we've got a lot of patents, obviously, or prototypes. And we chose uh, we chose those couple big sprints with prototypes and it's, it's proven uh, proven out well for us. Yeah, and to put things in perspective, prepping for some of our big labs could have taken us a month, like a team, a month of time to do. And that really took away from us getting on the CAD or us doing some prints or us doing some internal benchtop testing uh, that would have progressed the product. So it was a balancing act of hitting those meaningful milestones and inflection points uh, and, and showcasing the product at Tom's point. Um, that was probably the biggest obstacle, actually, Take, taking us away from doing the actual engineering side of things and then going out there and doing the marketing side at the same time. Well, hey, congrats on the success to date, gentlemen, Tom and Rob. And, uh, you know, we could talk all afternoon here about, you know, different ways to, to prototype. But I, I hadn't really put much thought into, like, the long sprint model. I mean, that's basically, you know, pre-alpha, pre-beta even development, like pre-design control. Um, but But it's... Um, it's in the startup mentality where you kind of have to not do everything, but just do enough to get an integrated prototype put together. And it's not three months and it's not a year. It's more like a six month sort of longer sprint. So, you know, when it's, it's good to hear that work for you guys. That was it for my end. So gentlemen, thanks again for your time. Uh, you're going to be internet famous now. So thanks again, guys. Andy, awesome. thanks so much. Great, great running into you a couple of weeks ago. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks. Thanks.